Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guys who explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. Our guest today is Diane Moody Burke. She holds a PhD in history from Emory University, and presently she is a professor of history and director of the Center for Midwestern Studies at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. She has co-edited three anthologies in the Missouri-Kansas border region, including Kansas City, America's Crossroads, Bleeding Kansas, Bleeding Missouri, The Long Civil War on the Border, and Wide Open Town, Kansas City during the Pendergast Era. Her first book, On Slavery's Border, Missouri's Small Slaveholding Households, 1815 to 1865, is our focus for today. Welcome to Our Missouri, Diane. Um, thanks for having me. Now, Tell us about the origins of this book project on Slavery's Border. How did that all begin? Well, I actually grew up um, here in Missouri and, you know, went to Missouri schools through high school. And so I, you know, I always loved history since I was a very small child and um, was always interested in 19th century, really Civil War era history. And so I knew that Missouri was a border state. I also knew that it was a slave state but I really um, never learned much, if really anything, about how slavery operated here. And my sense was that there were some differences when compared to the Deep South. You know, I went to college, I took a Southern history class and learned a lot about um, what happened in, um, you know, places like Virginia and South Carolina and um, Mississippi. Um, but I didn't learn much about, about Missouri in, in that class um, either. So when I decided to work on an undergraduate senior thesis, so the origins of this book go way back, um, I decided that I wanted to focus on this um, question of slavery in Missouri. And as I um, got more into that project, doing the research, and then ultimately writing this senior thesis, I found that I had stumbled upon a really important historiographical question, which is how did location and size of um, slavery units, how did that influence the experience of slavery and slaveholding um, in the American South? And so um, once I realized that this was really an important question that was, was honestly quite understudied in, in slavery studies and, and um, you know, the focus on the American South. I decided that this was something that I needed to pursue in graduate school and then ultimately um, it ended up as my first book. Now, as you're doing the research for this project and really getting into the primary source documents and secondary source documents, you know, what archives are you visiting? What historic sites are, are, are you going to? I mean, what, what are the materials you're going through to help build this research project? 
Well, at the time that I was doing the bulk of the research for this project, I was living in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I made a lot of research trips back to Missouri. And most of my archival research was conducted at the State Historical Society of Missouri. So then it was called the Western Historical Manuscripts Collection. The name has, has now changed. So I spent a lot of time in Columbia at the manuscripts collection. Um, I actually spent a lot of time on the UMKC campus. Um, I would oftentimes have documents shipped um, through their wonderful um, shipping process between their various sites. And I, would, I viewed a lot of the Columbia documents in Kansas City because my parents lived in Kansas City, so I had a free place to stay. Um, and um, you know that actually is the vast uh, majority of the archival documents or the manuscript collections that I that I explored. But I also spent quite a bit of time at the um, National Archives and Records Center in Washington, DC, looking at pension records of soldiers um, that had served in the Civil War, Black soldiers who had served in the Civil War. Um, so I spent weeks and weeks there um, photocopying all these pension records that I ended up um, examining to try to understand a little bit more about um, enslaved people's lives during slavery. Um, you know, that, that gave me a really wonderful view into people's family and community lives. Um, and those, those records ended up being invaluable to my project. I also, of course, used the WPA slave narratives and the few escaped slave narratives that were um, written by people who had been had been enslaved in Missouri. So um, people like William Wells Brown and Henry Bruce and Elizabeth Keckley, and there are a couple others, you know, those were all really valuable resources as well. I spent a little bit of time at the Missouri State Archives, at the Missouri History Museum in St. Louis at their archives, and then some other smaller repositories such as the Jackson County Historical Society. Um, but the bulk of my research was the Western Historical Manuscripts Collection and the National Archives. Now, before we jump into the, the key subject matter, the key themes that emerged within your book, to get a kind of an idea of the state of Missouri, where did slavery exist throughout the state when we look at that period prior to the Civil War? Well, there are enslaved people literally in every county in Missouri, but the largest concentration of enslaved people um, and the largest concentrations were in the counties along the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, but especially in what later became known as Little Dixie. So central Missouri river counties west to the state line. So in these places, enslaved, the enslaved population ranged from around 15% of the population to um, you know, even over 35%. So for example, in 1860, there were 6,374 enslaved people in Lafayette County, or you know, that um, comprised 32% of the total population. You know, 500, 886 enslaved people in Howard County, or 37% of the population. And in Boo County, the enslaved population, and again, this is in 1860, was 5,034 people, or 26% of the population. Um, but you know, to sort of fill out um, the other the other counties in that top 10 list of the largest enslaved populations. Um, those were Callaway and um, um, Saline and um, St. Louis, although that's really interesting because the enslaved population um, only made up 2% of the city's population, even though the numbers were actually high. 
um, because that city had 100, over 190,000 people living in it in 1860. So as a percentage of the population, it was really small, but it was one of the 10 largest slaveholding counties. And then the others were Pike and Jackson and Cooper and Clay counties. Now, when looking at, as you define that kind of what later becomes known as Little Dixie, that region around the Mississippi River Valley there, you know, slavery is is significant in Missouri's history, not only in, in elements of economic, social, cultural, you know, political history, but how had scholars looked at this subject matter, you know, we could say prior to your book, as you're prepping, you know, what, what authors are you reading and what are they saying about enslaved people and slavery in Missouri? Well, it wasn't really studied in a very comprehensive way. It was, by and large, as I, as I talked about earlier, left out of larger studies of slavery. I mean, sometimes they would sort of cherry pick anecdotes that they had mostly pulled out of the WPA um, slave narratives, which of course were the interviews that were conducted during the 1930s as part of the Works Progress Administration. So they're interviews of mostly, well, you know, exclusively elderly people and, um, you know, and have a lot of challenges um, that, uh, that are inherent in those, those interviews, but they're still a very rich way to examine slavery. So occasionally historians would take a really great story that would prove whatever point they wanted it to prove um, from Missouri, but they weren't really examining slavery in Missouri um, and trying to figure out exactly how it operated here and um, if there were any, any differences. There was one major work that I found in, in the library um, in, in my, my undergraduate college, you know, back, back in the stacks, this really, really old, you know, text that had been published in 1914 um, by a scholar named Harrison Trexler. And you can imagine that um, that book, although there were some really important details in the book um, that it was problematic in a lot of ways because of when it was written. Um, it certainly was not influenced by any of the newer scholarship on slavery and, you know, it was written in a time where um, there were much more racist views on, um, on all of this. And so, you know, you had to kind of work through that. Um, there's a really great book by R. Douglas Hurt about slavery and agriculture in Little Dixie, and there are various articles and dissertations, but there really hadn't been a comprehensive book written about slavery in Missouri, and there certainly wasn't one that focused on the questions that I was interested in, which um, were, you know, what were people's everyday existences like? Um, what, how do people live? Um, how did they work? Who, what were their relationships with each other? Um, you know, what were their family and community lives like? And people really hadn't focused on any of that because, you know, especially when Trexler wrote, I mean, nobody was even thinking about those kinds of questions. They were more interested in the politics and the economics of slavery than they were in um, how people live their everyday lives. I will admit I had to go through Trexler after reading your book the first time and, and trying to see the, the comparison there and talking about that. So I appreciated you discussing that uh, for understanding Trexler and, and a book that is now, yeah, 100 plus years old. Yes, yeah, so that's a really long time um, between major books on slavery in Missouri, for sure. Now, you, you talked about it there just briefly that with the, the focus on, on the everyday existence and really life within 
kind of slaveholding households and society in Missouri. So talk about that focus, really. What brought you to focus in on that? And, and what were you finding in the research in relation to that? Well, honestly, this is what really interests me about history. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the politics and, and the wars and, and the economics, um, but I'm really interested in, in how people live their everyday lives or what historians would call social history. Um, so I, you know, again, I want to see how people related to one another, how they lived and worked together. I want to um, see how their families were structured and their communities. You know, and I think a lot of this came from interest in women's history. Um, you know, certainly at the time that Trexler was writing, he wasn't spending much, if any time, talking about the experiences of women or children. Um, but those were both things that really were interesting to me um, as a historian. So um, although, you know, in my book, I, I talk about politics and I talk about economics, um, I'm, I'm really interested in the social history um, and, and trying to explore, you know, what was happening within these, these households. And, you know, ultimately, did it look any different than what was happening within the, you know, so-called big house on, on a plantation, which was honestly, you know, um, has been a lot where a lot of the research has been focused to, you know, to try to understand these relationships between people on plantations. And so, you know, I wanted to basically give that kind of a treatment to these households in Missouri and see if there were any similarities or, or if there were any differences um, and then try to explain those. Now, in going through that, what, if anything, surprised you about this everyday experience about life in Missouri as an enslaved person or, or even the person who is, is involved in the enslavement? Well, the first thing that that I realized, well, I, I guess that's, that's not really right to say the first thing because it took a lot of research to come to this conclusion. But one of the things that I was working against was this idea that slavery was somehow milder or more domestic in, um, in a place like Missouri, and I and I say a place like Missouri because there were other parts of the South where small-scale slavery predominated. So what the reality was in Missouri is that um, most slavery units, you know, these households that um, engaged or you know or owned, and I'm putting that in in air quotes. I mean, certainly legally at the time they owned other human beings, it's, you know, we, we obviously don't agree with that idea today. And so, you know, it's hard to, um, to grapple with that language, honestly. But, um, you know, in these households, they're, you know, they were smaller, smaller units. Um, in most slaveholding households in Missouri, um, there were 10 or fewer enslaved people. And so that meant that that on most of these, these farms, and they like to call themselves plantations because you know, to them that sounded you know, very fancy, I think. Um, but they were farming operations that engaged um, or forced enslaved labor. But in most cases, um, most of these farms only had a few adult enslaved people living on them and the rest of, of the enslaved individuals were children. So what did this mean? Um, you know, did it, did it mean the relationships were better or worse? 
Um, you know, certainly there was this idea that Missourians liked to promote even back during slavery times that somehow slavery was better, it was more benign here, it was milder because of these, these close household relations, you know, this was sort of the, the idea that they were trying to sell. And honestly, that idea has really persisted um, up until today that somehow it was, it was maybe an easier form or better, you know, which is obviously a problematic word, but somehow a better or milder form of slavery because you know, they primarily were not um, growing cotton here because the growing seasons were not reliable for massive cotton cultivation. Um, they were growing hemp and tobacco, but also a lot of other um, diverse, well, they were engaged in diversified agriculture. So there were cash crops to be sure, and access to the river really made that possible. They were able to ship their crops to market, um, but they were also engaged in a lot of other kind of agricultural practices that kept their households running. So, you know, kitchen gardens and raising livestock and poultry and hogs and, and all the things that they needed to make these operations um, economically profitable, but also feed the people that were living within the household. So as I dug into this and tried to understand what exactly this meant for um, enslaved people and for their enslavers, within these households, you know, was it actually better? And what I found was that in most cases, not. I mean, it looked really um, in a lot of ways the same as it would look anywhere else. Um, there was this continuum of relationships and behaviors that ranged from, you know, within the confines of slavery. So, you know, I wanna qualify that it's not, um, slavery is never good, but in some cases people were treated a little bit better. Um, and then, you know, I saw every form of abuse that you could imagine that, you know, historians have seen in, seen in other parts of the South, they all happened here as well. And I think actually because people were living and working so closely together, um, so in Missouri on most of these properties, there were not overseers because there was not such a large enslaved population on the various properties that they really warranted, um, you know, the expense of hiring overseer. So in most cases, the work was supervised by the owner of the farm, perhaps his, um, his sons, and the household work was supervised by, um, by the wife um, and the daughters within, within these households. And, and so because people were, were living in fairly close proximity to one another, it's very typical in Missouri for enslaved people to live in outbuildings on the farm property. So not an independent, well, it was not independent, but a slave quarter that was sort of set um, at, a, at a distance from, from the, you know, again, the so-called big house. Um, they were living in cabins in the barnyard, basically in the farmyard. And so really close to, um, to white people's homes, sometimes even within their homes. And, and so this, um, you know, created these situations where people knew one another pretty well. Um, and I would argue that enslaved people knew um, white people probably better. It was in their best interest to really study um, the personalities and the behaviors of their white enslavers. But, um, but they did know each other and, and um, interact with each other on a daily 
spaces in all these kinds of intimate ways. And because of that, it would, it would sometimes um, cause the situations to spiral out of control really quickly. If one person or the other's um, expectations were not met, um, if you know somebody felt insulted, um, it could things could get really ugly very quickly. And and while sometimes that behavior, you know, violence um, especially was perpetrated by enslaved people, but you know, vastly uh, more often it was perpetrated by white people against enslaved people. Um, so, so, you know, just as a baseline, I wanna debunk this idea that somehow slavery was milder or better or the conditions um, were markedly better. Now, the one thing that I will qualify this with um, is saying that, you know, the climate is better in Missouri than it is in, in Mississippi or Louisiana. So there were some better aspects um, there. And the work routines were perhaps not as harsh um, for most of the time as they would have been on a cotton plantation or a sugar plantation in Louisiana. But, um, but there were times when, when the work regime was very harsh, like during hemp breaking season, um, or um, you know, tobacco is very labor intensive. So I don't want to sugarcoat that too much. Um, but you know, you could make a, a slight argument about that. But but by and large, um, you know, slavery is slavery, and and it's a horrible, horrible institution. The other thing that I discovered, which um, I thought was really interesting, and made a contribution to the study of slavery in America is this idea of, of what happened in these small scale slavery neighborhoods, communities where the vast majority of slave holdings were small, how that influenced people's family and community lives. And that was really, really interesting. And again, this is information, a lot of which um, I, I learned through studying those pension claims and also the WPA slave narratives, but pension claims were really excellent for trying to understand how this all worked. Um, so what I found is that in Missouri, there um, was a large percentage of, of abroad families. So this was a term that they used at the time and that historians still use today. So what that means is that husbands and wives, couples um, who had, had formed families lived on two different properties. Um, so they were, were claimed by two different um, slaveholders. So, and this was, you know, purely because of the demographics. Um, these were not large plantations with dozens and dozens of enslaved people. And, you know, whoever you lived with on your own property was um, probably related to you. So people had to go looking elsewhere for marriage or sexual partners. And I do want to want to say that marriages were not legally recognized among enslaved people um, during this time, but they were seen by the community as marriages. And so um, the way that this worked is that enslaved men and women would meet one another um, out in the community, at church, perhaps at, at different social gatherings, which I'll talk about here in a minute. And um, they formed attachments, romantic attachments to one another, relationships with one another, and um, decided that they wanted to, to form a family, to, to be married. And then um, the white people 
would would recognize these relationships and would allow the men and it was always the men to go and visit their families and usually the way that that worked is that men would leave after work on saturday afternoon or evening and would walk or travel some way sometimes um slaveholders gave them horses to ride this was pretty unusual but so they would usually walk to go visit their families they typically stayed with them Sunday and then they would leave either you know late Sunday evening or early Monday morning to be back um, ready for work on Monday morning sometimes they visited more often if they lived close by um, but you can see that you know this this was a difficult situation for families they were reliant on white people to allow them these visiting privileges. White enslavers oftentimes used these privileges as a way to manipulate people, um, to get them to behave the way that they wanted them to behave, you know, by withdrawing privileges. And it was also very tenuous um, as far as, as the possibility that these families could be split apart by various, by various things. So let's say one, um, white enslaver decides that he's going to move to Texas and takes um, one of the family members with him um, or um, or that that he or she is going to sell sell someone. Um, so many of these families were broken apart by this, but um, but what was remarkable to me is how long many, many of these families were able to persist. Sometimes, with multiple owners over time. And, and as long as they were close enough in physical proximity to one another, they continued on with their relationships. And I should add that the way that slavery worked is the condition of children, the, the you know, enslaved condition of children followed that of the mother. So the mother and the children lived on one property and um, the father lived on another. And so close to 60%, of the families that I could identify were part of these abroad um, relationships. They existed throughout the South, but in a place like Missouri, where there was such a high percentage of small scale um, slavery units, it was just so much more. It was the common form of family um, rather than, a, than families that lived on the same property um, with one another. So, exploring how these families operated and how they were able to, how enslaved people were able to, to make this, you know, less than ideal situation work over long periods of time um, was, was really fascinating. And what you see is um, when slavery ends and there's an opportunity for people to actually legalize their marriages, they do in very, very large numbers. Um, so these, these relationships that started out with people living on separate properties, ultimately after the Civil War, and um, in many cases with people living together for the first time in many, many years. And I guess the, the second part of this is this idea of cross-farm enslaved communities. So there's been a lot of research on enslaved people's communities in the South, and the things that historians have pointed to as helping enslaved people mitigate the, the harsh and horrible experience of slavery is, you know, family. Um, so I've talked about that and community and then um, religion, which was mostly Protestant 
um, evangelical religions that that most enslaved people by the 19th century had had adopted. So, you know, abroad families, the family situation is is a little more tenuous and, and more difficult in a place like Missouri. And then um, you could extrapolate that and and also talk about how enslaved communities were vulnerable um, because there were not slave quarter communities, again, with, with dozens of enslaved people living on the same property. And so how did people form communities? And there has been some suggestion um, by, by a few people that maybe they didn't. Um, but what I found was that in fact they did. And again, the pension record's really wonderful for this because the way that the pension worked is that um, a soldier who, who fought in the war or his descendants, so if he, if he was killed during or died um, during the war, his widow and his children, his orphans could apply for a pension. Also sometimes mothers and fathers who could prove that their son would have been their sole dependent, you know, would have um, you know, given them the money to live in their old age, they could apply as well. And so um, in order to get the pension, you had to prove your relationship to the individual who had died during the war. And so war widows relied on testimony from people in the community to prove their marriages because they had no marriage records since marriages were not legal. And so what they did was they asked family, family members, they asked friends, sometimes ministers, sometimes former owners, to testify to their relationship, to testify to the fact that they were married during, um, during slavery times or that they were seen by the community as married. And so these records give all this wonderful information about how people knew one another. So they talk about um, you know, knowing people because they went to church with them. And they talk about you know, visiting people, men talk about visiting people like friends and neighbors on their way to visit their abroad wives. Um, they talk about community gatherings, you know, what they called frolics or, or in essence parties. So oftentimes these were sanctioned by white people in the community. So, you know, think about something like a barn raising or a corn shucking. Um, what they were trying to do is they were trying to leverage the labor of their friends and neighbors to try to get a job done um, faster and more efficiently. And so they would throw a party um, and have everybody come, all the white neighbors come and bring um, enslaved workers with them. And, and then of course the enslaved people did most of the work while the white people had a party. Um, but they, then they would um, treat the, the workers to a bit of a party as well. And so people were able to meet one another um, through these, these social engagements that were sanctioned by, by the white community. But they also, you know, I found lots of evidence through a whole different, you know, from, through many forms of records of people meeting clandestinely. So meeting without the approval or the sanction of white Missourians. So they're meeting back in the woods for clandestine parties where there isn't a white person present so they can dance and sing and tell stories and, and drink and do all the things that they, that they want to do um, on their own within their own community. Um, I've read about drinking and gambling in the woods and there were clandestine 
church services, religious services that again were out of earshot of white Missourians. So people could, um, preachers could preach, black preachers could preach what they wanted to preach um, without, without it being controlled, um, without being controlled by, by white people who were telling them the messages that they were supposed to impart to their listeners. Um, so all of these kinds of activities were happening you know, back in the woods, at abandoned cabins, in caves, um, various places. And so people knew one another in their communities and they talked about how they knew their neighbors or their near neighbors, they sometimes refer to them. Um, so there's this really rich enslaved community um, within these neighborhoods. And, and ultimately all of these relationships serve people really well uh, when the civil war happens and you know and there's this opportunity because there's a presence of union soldiers in Missouri and because Missouri is virtually well it's not virtually it's surrounded by free states um, by this point except for in the south and so um, they they know where to go they know who to trust um, they they know the back byways and the back woods trails um, so that they don't have to go on the roads, you know, all of this they they use to their advantage as they're seeking freedom um, during during the years of the Civil War, which were, of course were incredibly tumultuous in Missouri. In thinking about, you know, we mentioned Trexler from 1914 and, and a couple of books on on slavery in Missouri, between that point and in and, and your book being published. Since your book has been published, how do you think Missouri is interpreted within the larger narrative of American slavery in, in scholarship? Well, that's that's a good question. I, I hope people are paying more attention to Missouri because it's such a, well, I mean, it, it has such a fascinating history for one thing, um, but also it's, it's so fundamentally important in this history of the coming of the Civil War. I mean, it, it was, and I think as often, been seen certainly now and even back in the day um, as being on the periphery of the slave South. I mean, it is the Northwesternmost slave state. It has a relatively small enslaved population. In 1860, a little less than 10% of Missourians were enslaved. You know, it certainly had this more diverse population in the last decades before the Civil War. There were, you know, thousands upon thousands of immigrants who had come from Germany. Um, many of those folks were anti-slavery, although not all of them. Um, and a lesser extent, some people from Ireland, um, there had been an, a number of people who had moved in from Northern states as well. Um, but yet, even though there's this diversity within the state, which causes some people to be concerned about, about whether or not Missouri will persist as a slave state, it, you know, it's, it's still, as we've talked about, I mean, you know, slavery is entrenched in this in the state, economically, socially, and politically. And the state was often in the middle of the events in the lead up to the Civil War. So, you know, the Missouri Compromise, I mean, the greatest hits really of all of these events that lead up to the Civil War. Um, Bleeding Kansas, the Dred Scott decision, the rise of Lincoln's political fortunes. I mean, he's he's talking about what's happening in Kansas and what's happening in Kansas is is very much very much has to do with the way Missouri's the Missourians, especially in Western Missouri, are reacting to what's happening in Kansas, and even John Brown. I mean, John Brown is radicalized in Kansas, and then goes on um, and and stages his Harper's Ferry insurrection. So it's um, 
it's right in the middle of all of this. And yet historians have really not paid as much attention to it as they should. And they also have not paid as much attention to the Civil War in the West. And by this, I mean, really the Trans-Mississippi West. And all of that has started to change in the last couple of decades, which is really great. Um, you know, there are wonderful, wonderful books that have been written about the Civil War in the West, and they've gotten a lot of attention, which has been really wonderful. Um, but there also has been increased in attention on slavery in Missouri. I'm, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's an unchartered, you know, sort of frontier of scholarship in the sense that, um, that nobody has written on it, but um, but certainly more and more people are writing on it. So, you know, wonderful books about um, the St. Louis freedom suits. There's Kristen Epps book about civil or about slavery along the Missouri-Kansas border. Um, Sharon Romeo's book about the experiences of nor, um, newly freed Missouri women and the aftermath of the Civil War and the freedom suit books, you know, Kelly Kennington, Ann Twitty, um, Leah Vanderbelds. And then again, all these really wonderful books that have been written about, about um, the Civil War history of the state, which is, is so fascinating. I mean, that's really the thing that captivates me now um, in, and you know, what I hope to continue to work on. So, you know, scholars like Chris Phillips and Jeremy Neely and Gary Kramer and um, Aaron Astor and, and um, Megan Bacardi and, and many others. Um, so there's, there's been, um, there's been so much more that that has been written and published in the last 10 years. It's really wonderful to see that the state and its important role, both in slavery and in the Civil War is finally getting some of the recognition that I think the history merits. Um, so I think it will, we will just continue moving forward and, and writing about this really interesting place. Now we've talked a little bit about books that came before, obviously uh, yours, and 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 you mentioned there uh, many of the scholars who are, are writing on the subject matter that have published since your book has come out, and noted the importance of your work and how they crafted their own scholarship. But what unanswered questions remain on the subject? I mean, what what should future scholars and students consider? Do you think when researching slavery in Missouri? Well, I mean, there's there's always more that you could do. I remember when I was working on, on the book, I just kept reading more and more documents. I mean, I can't even tell you how many documents I've read. Um, you know, like the pension records, I read one regiment worth. So I looked at at just the mostly the widow's claims and and the orphans' claims because that is what I felt like yielded the most about most information about about their time during slavery. So, you know, those, you know, those records have not been thoroughly mined. Um, There's certainly, I mean, for information about slavery, but also about people's experiences during the Civil War and the aftermath. I think that what happened to people after the Civil War, there's so much work that could be done on this. And there are many people who, who have um, done work on this and, and including Gary Kramer. Um, but, um, you know, there, there's still so much more that could be done. I think people could do localized studies, you know, to really try to explore exactly how these communities operated. So I didn't 
do a case study, I looked at, I mean, the records were mostly from central Missouri, but I didn't, you know, really dig in and see exactly how these networks operated within one community, for example. I think that would be a really interesting thing to do. Um, and I know that there are records that I didn't spend as much time with as I could have. I could have spent more time with, with legal records. I could have spent more time with newspapers. Um, but, you know, as with any book, at some point you feel like you have enough to tell the story and you have to stop, <laughs> even though there's so much more that you could, could explore um, if you kept exploring and there, there's just really a wealth of records that you could explore. Um, you would work on the, the book for 50 years. So, you know, I, I, had to, I had to send it out there into the world. So if I were to go back and, and do it differently, I would have spent more time examining what happened during the Civil War. And I would have maybe examined in greater depth some of these records that I spent some time with, but I could have spent more time with. But, you know, at some point you have to stop. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Diane. Um, you're welcome. Um, I, it was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. <laughs>